Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. And James, we're joined by a very special guest today. A very, very special guest. We're joined today by Ronnie Scott, who is aged 103 and is an Argentinian Spitfire pilot who flew for the fleet air arm in the Second World War. How about that? I mean, I didn't even know there were Argentinians fighting on the part of the British, let alone Argentinian Spitfire pilots still alive, Ronnie. Well, uh, I reckon we had about 4,000 volunteers from the British community in the Argentine, of which 398 were pilots, and mostly in the RAF. It so happened that uh, I chose the Navy because when I was about 10 years old, the first aircraft carrier came out to the Argentine with the Prince of Wales and Prince George. And I was at Hurlingham, a local club, watching the polo game, and somebody galloped up to me and asked me for a gin for a tonic water. So there was no mistaking Prince Edward, 
So I said, yes, sir. So I went off to get the, his tonic water. And the only problem I had is whether I put some lemon or not inside it. The lemon was <laughs> accepted and uh, the prince definitely needed some tonic water. And his equerry turned up and they said something between them. So I had an invitation to go on board this aircraft carrier. It was the original kind, something that was long enough. So they had cleared the decks and um, I had a very good time. I was uh, all of 10 years old. So I touched it away in my mind. That was about 19, either 1925 or 1929. We had a, an exhibition uh, agricultural industrial exhibition and we had all sorts of people from England. We had Campbell with his uh, racing car and Seagrove mm -hmm. with his golden arrow. But this, it was a really good show. In between, every so often the British Navy would turn up every two years and uh, they would have out in the Atlantic, they would have, uh, with the Argentines, Chileans, Uruguayos, Brazilians, and sometimes Peruvians, they'd have naval exercises. And, in mid and at the time when they were here, the Navy always put on, for the English schools, they put on a very nice show that was very much accepted. How amazing, vote to have, to have witnessed some of those things. And, and, and of course, at this time, Ronnie, you know, it was also new, wasn't it? You know, seeing sort of super fast cars and aircraft carriers and planes, you know, this was still at the kind of early stages of, of their lives, really, isn't it? That kind of And of course, with World War Two, everything came up with improvements the whole time. And yep. uh, the mere fact that, uh, what was his German's name? Uh, the big fat shot who was the brigadier. <laughs> and he Goering. wanted to know, Goering, he wanted to know why Britain was still intact and the, and the Germans hadn't uh, got control of the skies. They had some 7,000 planes against Britain's 1,600, 1,700. And uh, Dahlan, who was uh, one of their generals, uh, fighter, day fighter in charge, told Goering that if Goering got him some spitfires, he could do something about it. So <laughs> they all came out here, the Germans with Peron, and uh, they tried to produce uh, some planes here, but the industrial side is not too good in the Argentine. But 
the Argentines put up a good show in the Falkland Islands, <laughs> inclusive yes. some of us who were younger, who'd been in the war. Uh, they went out in uh, fast planes to try and attract the Harriers to make contact, radar contact, so the other boys would have a chance. And the other set was some very serious. Otherwise, our community, which was 60,000 Brits around about the 1940s, has dwindled away. And unfortunately, the country, as a country, has descended to a third-class country. We used to be a first-class country. But Ronnie, when you were you were younger, I mean, obviously you've got a you've got an English uh, not an English but a British name. When did you when did your family move to Argentina then? Because I'm assuming you you know you came from from Scotland, didn't you, or, or from England? He came from Scotland. My mother came from London, mm -hmm. so they were both Brits. And my Scot uh, my father went with a group of Australians to the Boer War, and then came out That's this amazing. way. And as he was a, a very good sportsman, he became a sports, he wrote up sports in uh, the Standard, which was the mm -hmm. first British uh, newspaper in the Argentine. And uh, he was very good. But so I you grew him. up in Buenos Aires, did you? That's right. I lost my father when I was about 10. They used to go out on fishing trips up towards uh, Paraguay, up, up the river system. And unfortunately, in those days, there were no fridges. And... Uh, he got hold of a bad fish, and that was that. So I went to British schools here, and the level was quite good. We did some Cambridge exams. And then after that, it was a case of when I was 17, 18, of having to work and look after my mother, my elder brother had gone up north to Misiones to work on the Gerba Mate plantations. My sister was a gate, got married to somebody who was a cotton expert from Manchester in a factory called Alpargatas, which was a very big outfit. And he was a a spinning master. The family on the whole was maintained British standards and uh, I dedicated myself to sports and eventually when I got to England uh, I found myself I was chosen even though was a, an, an Argentine. There's a story when we got to England we were given bad, sh shoulder badges 
B-L-A-V, British Latin American Volunteer. But uh, it so happened that some wise character changed that into bastards lusting after virgins. <laughs> so I, I took my badge off and just put Argentina. And of course, that caused quite, quite a lot of interest. But uh, I was happy with it. So apart from doing whatever the Navy wanted, I flew, I think, everything that they had. I eventually, actually, I had to go into the drink because my uh, plane, the engine conked out. So I had a, a gunner with me. Sorry to interrupt. What were you, what were you flying at that time? The, the name slips my mind, but it was no, mm. nothing very important, but it was right. an instruction plane. And uh, so I went into the drink and was eventually picked up by an RAF motorboat. And uh, the gunner got picked up by one of these uh, seaplanes. So he was flying the next day and I was flying the other day. So none the worse. <laughs> and then after, Amazing. The, after the war, uh, flew with Aeroposta Argentina, which were the French company, came Air France, but back in 1929, they were called the Aeropostal, mm -hmm. and they were the first to start uh, doing uh, mail, air mail, to the Argentine. And uh, then eventually Peron wanted to nationalize the different airlines. So in 1950, we became Aerolíneas Argentinas. So between the two, I flew 30 years. I was flying Comet 4s and, and Boeing to Europe. And, and I preferred to fly. When they started flying 10-hour, 10, 11 hour trips. I asked to go back to the Boeing 737s 200, mm -hmm. which was a beautiful plane. I wanted to fly. My two boys were giving mother a lot of trouble so I could look after them as well. <laughs> so eventually now, at 103, I have one son who was a KLM um, 747 captain. He lives in mm -hmm. Malta, and the other son lives in Australia. He had been a cadet in the Argentine Air Force, but he, as they weren't flying, he decided to give it up and go, go work in the country. So he went to Australia, and now he's living in Australia. And in the meantime, I've done a lot of sport. I played cricket for the Argentine. I played rugby. I played bowls. I'm still playing, having a game of bowls twice a week. So I Good can't complain. 
We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. But Ronnie, tell me, you know, when, when you, what, what was it, just to go back to the war, what was it that made you think, I'm going to join up and I'm going to go and fly on the part of the Allies? There's no, there was no doubt whatsoever. Hitler was more than a scum, he was a bastard. And he was killing people off right, left and centre. I suppose that he must have got rid of at least 50 million possibly Germans, quite apart from Poles and other people. So there was, no, there was no argument. One had to do something. After all, we were brought up in the Anglican Church. I had lots of that. Yeah. So there was no doubt whatsoever. You had to go along and do your bit. And what was the journey? How did you get from Argentina to, to the UK? Well, the embassy looked after that. All I had to do was be ready in 24 hours. There would be a ship coming in, and that ship would go back with uh, food, meat, cereals, whatever. So eventually the Highland Brigade, the Royal Mail Line, they came along beginning 43. So from Buenos Aires, I stepped on board, and in five minutes, I was already hooked up to serve some Ehrlichan uh, guns <laughs> astern. And from 8 to 12 in the morning and 8 to 12 at night, and I did that all the way to to Liverpool. Via, we were went, we were sent out to Bermuda and New York. On, on the way to London. What an adventure! And we, and we went to Montevideo first to top up with meat and cereals. Then we went to Rio and we picked up two torpedoed captains plus 18 officers plus some Indian crewmen who had been torpedoed off West Africa. They had been about 20 days at sea and eventually got to Natal and uh, they had about 30 bods on, on two um, lifeboats and only about 10 arrived. They just didn't have enough food as the waters, the currents are a bit on the slow side and there's not much wind in that area. But uh, they came on board with us. And on the way to Liverpool, we got orders to go and meet uh, a U.S. naval destroyer and go to um, the island Bermuda to pick up some 50 U.S. naval officers. Amazing. So the U.S. destroyer didn't turn up for about five hours, so the captain decided that he wasn't going to stick around any longer, and so he went to Bermuda. The destroyer caught up with us when we were coming into Bermuda Harbor. Then we went to New York, and out of 400 volunteers, we were on board. We had 300 
and 10 Argentines, about 70 Chileans, and the rest of the 400 were a few Uruguayans, and then we picked up a few Brazilians in Rio de Janeiro, and the British torpedoed uh, seamen. And we went off, and then uh, we got this change of course, where we went to Bermuda, New York, and out of the 400, there was just 29 of us left on board. <laughs> and we were sent off the following day from New York to Liverpool. And we knew that there was a 60-ship convoy leaving in about a week's time. And we also knew that there were supposed to be three German submarines waiting for us. So Jerry's obviously decided that they'd let us go through. So we got to Liverpool and the rest got attacked a week later. And out of the 60 odd ships, I think we lost about 27. Some sunk, others very badly damaged. And the um, Jerry's got away, I think, as far as I know. Gosh. Goodness, what a journey. We got to Liverpool in the afternoon, and uh, by the evening, we were already on buses heading for London, and it was a tremendously clear night, very strong moon, and it was significant how along this main route to London, we'd come across churches absolutely smashed up. <laughs> and actually, those churches had the nucleus of buildings from the last 200 years. I wanted any confirmation as to what the Germans were up to to see these destroyed churches with everything knocked out. Eventually, I went to St. Paul's in London, a very important sector with the Bank of England and other. St. Paul's got an incendiary bomb in the dome. Unfortunately, it didn't go off. So, St. Paul's is a living memory. <laughs> and I know you ended up flying on, on Spitfires. I mean, can you remember your first flight in the Spitfire? Well, uh, I only did instruction, certain amount of instruction, and it so happened I had a... When I went to the flight office, there was a wren there who was crying away, and this is the second or third time that I'd been to the office, and this wren was having a bad time. So I checked who was in charge of the flight, and it was a Dutchman. So I must have looked at him rather hard, because he said, why are you looking at me like that for? And I said, he should know better. And eventually, I got separated from the, from the flight. Mm -hmm. I went on to 794 Squadron, whereas well, I had to tow some targets for other pilots to have a 
I go at uh, shooting at right. targets. And uh, it was doing a job. Then I had this uh, engine cocked out, and I went into the drink. Yep. And rather amazingly, uh, I called up the control and said, So and so, mayday, mayday, I'm going into the drink of Trevo's head. Yep. And then I get the Ren who was in replying in the control tower. And she said, I'm not quite sure. Is there any pilot who can? And I had used the normal words, I am ditching, I am ditching. And this a pilot came in on the air and said, I think he is bitching about something. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's after that. I just tried to put her down on the water, which I did. The board I had with me, the gunner, he was flying the next day. Uh, I had a slight bang in the head because we had a, an obstruction on one side of the fuselage and I turned in the water after I landed in the water. So I was knocked out for a few seconds, and when I came to, my effort was to get out, and here I am. <laughs> so I, I reckon I flew everything that the Navy had, and uh, I came back. I did a course in England with somebody called Tootle Broadhurstley, mm -hmm. who were the number one company in cottons and uh, text, uh, ladies' textiles. I was, came out as an admin manager, but at the end of a year I decided that I wanted to fly, so I joined Aeroposta Argentina, which as I said was started up by the French. I flew some 30 years in the Argentine with Aerolíneas Argentinas. Flew to the States and flew to Europe. Flew Comet 4s, 707, uh, 700s, but I preferred the 7 to 737, which is a beautiful plane. But what was your favorite plane that you flew for the Royal Navy? The Seafire is a very nice plane. Yes. Uh, I'm just, we're talking about, it didn't have much range, but it was maneuverable. It was a beautiful plane to hand, handle. It was the plane to fly as a pilot. I didn't get to fly in the RAF, there were some planes, like um, the successor. There were two successors um, to the Spitfire, and that one of them was a plane that we Brits designed for the Yanks. Oh, was that the Mustang? Yeah. Or the other way around? Or the... Hmm. That, the Mustang 
must have been about the best, yeah. best plane to handle. Yeah. Beautiful machine. But after the war, when I was in Aerolinias, uh, Britain sent along the VC-10. VC-10 had four engines at the back. With two engines out on one side, the VC-10 was absolutely steady. Yep. The Boeing 707 with two engines out was a calamity. <laughs> so much so that in the TWA in the States, on the first Boeing 707 that the chief pilot took with him to receive as a plane, he had the Boeing instructor on the right-hand side, and without saying anything, he just pulled back two, en two engines on one side, and the Boeing flipped over, just flipped over. Amazing. And uh, so they crash-landed the Boeing. I've flown on simulators, Boeing 707s, the two engines out, and I can assure you that when I did it on a real plane, it was a calamity. <laughs> Gosh. <sighs> well, well, Ronnie, um, what's the, the your film is out soon, isn't it? Um, uh, which tells the story of your life and uh, the story of your service in the UK. Um, it, it's a it's very, very special to talk to you um, from Buenos Aires. And um, thank you so much for sharing your um, your story with us and your reminiscences. And um, uh, uh, and and above all else, thank you for for coming all the way from Argentina to defend us here in the UK. I mean, uh, um, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for having done that. Yeah, here, here. Uh, thank you so much for talking. It's called Buena Onda, isn't it, your film? The tale of... Buena Onda. What, what does Buena Onda mean? Buena Onda means be a sport, be respectful, and smile. Otherwise, there's no... You've got to... You've got to be straight. There's no options. And you've got to... You've got to smile whether you like it or not, just to try and keep them on track. Well, hear, hear to that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed. That's been, um, it's been a rare privilege. I'm incredibly grateful to you. Thank you so much, Ronnie. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to us talk to, to Ronnie Scott, who's filmed Buena Onda, Onda The Tale of Ronnie Scott. Um, uh, I think should be hitting screens uh, fairly shortly. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, we'll see you again soon. Cheerio.